He said, Diana, you have three kids, the fourth one on the way. What are you going to do if divorce is ugly? Like divorce is really difficult. It's hard. Like you're, you're going to need to stick it out. And I remember just like, I remember the moment that, um, I made the decision in 2012 that I was going to have to go through a divorce, high likelihood. I remember that moment in late 2014 towards 2015 when I made that decision and that I had that aha moment where I said, I'm going to have to be really independent and I'm going to have to pilot my independence financially, emotionally, with with our kids, you know, I'm going to pilot being this completely ultra independent woman to see like, can I do this and not fail our kids? Because the last thing I wanted to do was to create chaos in their lives. And so that's when I caved and I said, okay, let's go ahead and let's, let's, let's shoot for the stars. Let's, let's do this startup because I thought, you know, our Mecca was achieving a certain financial situation. And then the hope was that maybe we would return to Romania and be missionaries like the motherland and be able to help other people. And I thought that maybe, you know, through some miracle, if I prayed enough, if I fasted enough, if I became perfect enough, that surely this man would realize who I was and what I was sacrificing for this marriage, for this institution, for the good and the, the greater good of our children and humanity and everything that I stood for. You know, so I just like went forth and I said at the very, in the very worst case scenario, if our marriage fails, at least I will be equipped and I will know that I can take care of our kids all alone if, if everything else fails. And so we began our journey with our first startup and you know, we, it was, really a miracle. We had like no credit score. We had, you know, barely any savings. We'd borrowed money from my dad, found, uh, just stumbled across a Craigslist ad for an elderly man that had a few properties he was trying to sell and get rid of. And the one property that we did find was in Vancouver, Washington. It was a total dump. I mean, I still remember to this day, one of my dear, I mean, she's still a great mentor of mine. One of my dear, dear friends, Shanti, came and saw the house. It was a total dump. And she looked at it and she said that she went, she came with her husband to look at it. And I was, um, I think I was very pregnant at the time or had just had the baby, uh, our fourth baby. And, um, you know, we were talking about like our vision and what we're going to do and how we're going to remodel it. And she looked at it and she says, you know, she said, after we became successful, she said, she said, what the hell have these two gotten themselves into? So, um, it was, it was a total dump, but you know, I took a few months off after having our fourth baby and then had to go back to work after two or three months and work a lot of overtime so we could finish the project. We borrowed money from a couple of um, family members, um, you know, used Home Depot credit cards from people that had put us as authorized users. Like, I'm telling you, we started from the red. We started from the red. It was just a vision. And so we started that startup 
It took a lot of work, like hard work and perseverance. I am telling you, I was working six nights a week, homeschooling four kids, then got pregnant while we were waiting for the state to license our home. I was devastated. I was devastated. And not because I was sad about like, I, I've, I've said it so many times, like my dream was a family, was kids, but being very implicated. And I hated the fact that I couldn't be there even for my existing kids as much as I wanted to be. And so for me, I had already started the birth control conversation and we just had a lot of like gray area surrounding the religious portion of it. And that was the one time that I do remember I physically like yelled at my ex-husband and he was doing laps around the neighborhood with our at the time nine month old when I, while I was driving home from work because I had, you know, kind of yelled at him and was like, I told you we should have gotten, you know, this taken care of. Now we've got a fifth one. We're in the middle of stardom. What am I supposed to do? You know how sick I get when I'm pregnant. I mean, I'm like, I'm the person that has to go and get IVs. I'm the person walking around with a pick line, a port in my arm and infusing myself with IVs. Like I went and assessed a resident, a potential resident in Idaho. I, I kid you not. I went, I flew to Idaho. I had my IV bag infusing. I unlocked it closed the piggy ports, put that away in my luggage and went and assessed a resident and problem solved and coordinated a really, really big move because they were so desperate to move this resident. That was our first ventilator client. And I'll never forget him. He became like family, but you know, I was just beside myself. I was like, how now, now what am I supposed to do? Now I'm having a fifth. I was already contemplating leaving this marriage. Now I'm having a fit. Like, how am I supposed to do this? How? How am I supposed to be able to, I had kept my job with Kaiser because I was part-time and, um, you know, I like, because it was, it was the benefits. Now I'm pregnant. I had, you know, our, our sister was living with us. You know, uh, I had kept the benefits because there were great benefits. I basically had like six dependents other me under me. So I had to keep the part-time job. I was going into work at five 30 in the morning and I was, you know, stopping by the business to hook somebody up to peritoneal dialysis, going into work, working a full shift, coming home, checking on the business, coordinating business calls, doing things like that and during my downtime, which I didn't have. And at one point, um, I did go through a difficult time where I was let go because of, um, some unrelated things. And, um, I, basically had to fight to earn my job back, which I, in the end I did win. And I basically, it was a blessing in disguise. I was able to, um, have the baby, have some time, even though I had the business, you know, I was able to kind of focus on the family a little bit more and start really working on like my health because I could feel my body deteriorating slowly. There was just so much burden on me and we had nannies that were helping us out. My grandmother at the time had already moved back to Romania um, to help some of her family members and just go back home. She wanted to be back in the motherland. She was 80 something. And then my sister had graduated high school, was moving back home with family to start her nursing program. And um, so I was at the mercy of, you know, nannies that I could find through word of mouth and pay 
the only help that I really was getting was paid for. I had really well detailed, you know, daily agendas, especially for the baby because the baby was a newborn. And I, you know, went through moments where I had to train nurses at the night shift and the baby was in a car seat sleeping in the office and I would go and I would breastfeed in between during the night shift. I was on call 24 seven. It was super difficult for my body and my mind and my spirit and my soul but i stuck through it because i knew that that was our next that was the next goal and i said if i can meet that goal if i can reach that goal i'm proving something it's not me it's not I, and i felt like i had to perform in order to prove myself worthy of who i say i am and who i think i am because at this point if you know anything about someone that's been through covert emotional abuse or any kind of, you know, um, picking apart of them as a person, you know that they lose their sense of self, their identity. They don't know who they are anymore. And thinking of the fact that I was 17 when I got married, I knew so little about myself already. I didn't know anything about sexuality. I didn't know anything about all of these things that were so taboo for our culture and our religion. We didn't talk about these things. And so... You know, there came a point in time when, um, because I was becoming so ultra independent, he started becoming more and more detached from responsibilities. And I think he was just struggling with the fact that I was achieving so much and at such a young age and with so many difficulties and catalysts. And he was like, where do I fit in? But remember the promise I made myself? I said that I was going to prove to myself that I could take care of all of these kids, that I could provide for them, even if it just meant me being an ICU nurse, working the night shift and living a humble life. I knew I had that hustle. I knew I had that grit and I knew that I could take care of them. And so what happened was he became slowly but surely more and more detached and we would have these cyclical arguments. and. Those years, since 2012, we would have arguments because I would now articulate myself. I had found my voice. And, you know, even though I'd found my voice, looking back at who I was back then, which was a completely different person, I was projecting a lot of my, you know, um, frustrations on other people. I was very direct, very blunt, very aggressive. I was not just assertive, but I was aggressive. I was projecting and mirroring a lot of the things that were happening to me behind closed doors. And so what happened was at some point I had to, you know, we had gone through a couple of different managers, our turnover for caregivers and staff was really high. And that was really exhausting on me because I had to keep finding different people. Um, and you know, I knew that once the business was up and running, a lot of the, the responsibility was guess what going to happen on my shoulders is going to land on my shoulders because I'm the nurse. I was the ICU nurse and this was a nursing services business. There was not much that could be helped with other than being present with our family, with our kids, being super intentional. Like I thought if I'm going to sacrifice, these kids deserve at least one parent that's going to be really present for them. 
And unfortunately that wasn't really happening because of his own childhood traumas and issues that he was struggling with. And we would have these cyclical arguments and I would say, we need a third party. I need someone. I We need a third person. I don't care who it is, it, a counselor, a pastor that we don't know, anyone. And we would get back to this you know, conclusion that he would come at and he'd say, because he was an ordained deacon in a church, and he would say, all we need to do is I just need to get back into the word. I just need back into the, to get back into the word and we're going to learn all these things. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to get through it. And I, you know, we're going to like heal all these problems and this and that. And, you know, I, I told him at one point, I said, like, I don't, I just don't trust you. How am I supposed to trust that you're teaching me pure like motives from pure motives, the word that, um, and that you're not just teaching me a manipulated version of a dogma or an indoctrination that, you know, you want me to like believe like at this point, remember I'm, you know, over 10 years into a marriage that I have learned going on because I was out into society. The, the, the curse that I felt like I had by being the main breadwinner was actually my salvation. That was my blessing because I was around people that were challenging my thought process. And they're like, what do you mean you don't believe in birth control? What do you mean this? What do you mean that? And they were fellow Christians or they were maybe atheist or agnostic and they were just challenging my thought process. And you know, that really prompted me to go really deeply internally and like start thinking and mulling things over and really feeling like, okay, is, is this really what God wants me to go through? Like I'll, I'll stay. And you know, I, I stayed and I tell people this all the time, you know, they ask me, how did you stay so long? And I say, I stayed, I made an active decision and a choice every moment of every day that I stayed. And you know what happens when you stay? When you stay, you grow. There's no way you can't grow if you go through adversity. There's just no way that you won't become the strongest, most refined version of yourself. And the only thing that you take with you into eternity, whatever your belief system is, is your character. And if you can stay in a medium that will refine your character into something that's strong, into something that's resilient, into something that will burn anything that stands in its path, nothing can stop you. You become fearless. And that's what fueled me to keep going. And so I got to a point where I said, my body was speaking to me and was saying, if you don't stop this, if you don't stop this madness and all this stress, you will end up with cancer. Believe me. And I felt it in my body. I was overweight, even though I was eating clean. I was working out. I was seeing a personal trainer. I just wanted to feel stronger. I felt like my body was disintegrating. I felt like my spirit was being quenched. Like my spiritual being was dying slowly, was just like becoming so weak. I didn't know who I was anymore at that point. And so, what happened was I, I put my foot down and I said, we're selling. I can't do this anymore. There was a lot of like conversation that went around it and it was just a non-negotiable for me. I said, either you find yourself a nurse partner and take me out and we'll just split the money halfway or we actually sell, we liquidate, consolidate and we go to Romania because we deserve some sort of sabbatical. And in my mind, I thought if we can sell this business successfully and we can make 
a good turn of a profit, which we did. And we can go to our Mecca, right? That was our goal. It was the epiphany of like an immigrant Romanian was to go back to Romania and live off of US dollars and have an intentional life with kids. That's what I wanted. I wanted our kids to experience our culture, to know their history, to know our roots, what we come from, what culture's like, and to be well-rounded citizens. And so, you know, that was like the ultimate goal. And that was my non-negotiable. And so we sold, we liquidated, we sold that business, made a huge profit, pretty much like a once in a lifetime type of profit, right? Made the first million before I was 30 and had our, you know, five kids, liquidated everything, packed it all up, sold all of our cars, moved to Romania, clear across the globe and started fresh there. And I thought, if I surely, if I bring this man back to his roots, back to his culture, so he can heal his childhood wounds because he grew up there for the first 20 years of his life and now had been in America for almost 20 years and he was having a hard time with interpersonal relationships. And so I thought if we go back there, this is the last stop. If this doesn't work, I don't know what else will. There's literally nothing else I can do. And so we moved there. And in the meantime, he had found a different investment opportunity that was promising to yield a lot of return. So we, you know, had decided on a certain number of money to put in there. And then I wanted to like divvy it up. You know, I wanted to have, you know, the American dream college funds for each kid, like some sort of nest egg, um, pay off all our debt, be able to pay off a car, you know, everything that, that someone that wants to kind of like live a minimalistic life at one point wants to have like you just want that like authentic lifestyle that genuine lifestyle and that's what i really just wanted i just wanted time with the kids i was a homes avid homeschooling mom i love the homeschooling you know situation and so i was like this is going to be perfect like we're going to go and explore cultures together i mean like a round trip ticket from romania to israel or to greece is like 30 euros you know you you can stretch your dollar a lot so i was like we've got at least a solid like five years out there before we really have to like figure out okay what's our next move if if the investments don't pan out like we wanted them to and so what really happened was you know he didn't keep his word and invested much more money than we had agreed on it was a very shady investment that was kind of operating as a scam and had, um, had also made some other smaller investments, which were still pretty huge chunks of change um, through diverse little investment opportunities that he really believed in. And in my mind, like I had made a pact with God and I was like, you know what, God, like I'm letting go of everything because I know one thing, I know two things I've already piloted. I know how to make money and I know how to take care of my kids without him. So if all burns down, all else fails, I know that I can provide for these kids. And so I'm going to trust him blindly and I'm going to let him do this because this has been the last excuse that he had had. It was the finances. And what you'll learn about narcissistic tendencies or covert abuse and financial abuse, emotional abuse, all these different layers and levels and categories is that 
you know, there's always something and finances, you touch the money, that's a big hit. So I left it alone. And I'll never forget within, you know, six to eight weeks, we proverbially lost over half the money that we had made through the business that we worked so hard to build. And, um, you know, there was this promise that it was all going to be recuperated, yada, yada. So, you know, I got that phone call whenever it was lost and he was, you know, really scared whenever he called and he was really, um, I think he just felt really disappointed in himself. And he was like, you know, this is what happened. It was a deal that went bad in Switzerland, Switzerland. And, you know, I still remember in those moments, like, remember I, I said every moment of every day, I made an active decision to remain faithful to my promise. And, um, whenever he was like, I just don't know what to do. And he was beside himself. I said, you know, you just, just come home. We can always make money. Just come home. Let's figure it out. And he didn't come home for another couple of weeks. He was trying to like problem solve things over there and trying to recuperate the money, which never happened. And, but eventually came home and that became something that really consumed him with a lot of, um, just guilt and also just like mind-numbing, ruminating, like, and mulling over, like, what happened? Why did it happen? How can I find it? What can I do? Da, 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 da. And, you know, that really consumed, like, everything and uh, took away all of the joy. He hated being back in the motherland. He always m made it seem like, and he, he would always compare it and say that, like, it was like, you know, you finally got a comfortable pair of shoes and now you went back to the pair of shoes that don't fit you. Like, that's how it was returning back to Romania for him. Whereas it was super uncomfortable, I, I'm not gonna lie. Like Europe is not a fun place to live with a large family. It's just not. Like I wore workout clothes going there to like their local grocery store because there's no customer service. Everything is not like automated like it is in America. But I loved the connections that I was able to make. I loved the fact that our kids were on their bicycles, you know, roaming the streets. I loved going to the little gypsy village with Christmas gifts and seeing all of these, like all of these, um, you know, poor and unfortunate kids and letting our kids see that that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted life to tell them no, because a lot of times life will tell you no much more than it will ever tell you. Yes. And guess what? When life tells you no, you have to make it a yes. And that's what I wanted. I wanted them to have that resilience. And unfortunately, in the American culture, there's a lot of entitlement. And I wanted them to get out of that mindset so that they would be more open-minded and be fierce and be resilient and be able to like get through life in a certain way and in a certain demeanor. And so, you know, I loved it for that. I loved the culture. I loved you know, substituting birthday parties, which I feel like can be a waste a lot of times because you're not focusing on your child. You're focusing on everyone else's children and the whole experience, which is great in its own way. But remember, I was just trying to rebuild those connections with my kids that I felt like I had to emotionally separate from them so that I could survive and thrive in a certain demeanor and make sure that I'm able to take care and protect them. I was that protective parent. And so we would take them to a different country for their birthday. Like, 
you know, I'll never forget Hattie wanted, she was really into like Greek mythology. So we went to Greece, we went to Athens and we explored all the temples and, you know, we just had a lot of like one-on-one -on -one conversation with her and it literally cost us no more for three days with her one-on-one. -on -one, it cost us less than what it cost us to throw a birthday party in America. So, you know, there was like a shifting of priorities that I really loved there, but it was causing a lot of like, um, difficult conversations and he was very unhappy. And so, you know, his, um, conversation was, well, I think this is too small of a city. It was the city that my dad had grown up in and I had some family there and I wanted to land somewhere where I had some help. And so we wound up moving to the city that he was from. And, um, and just right outside of it, Timisoara, we lived in Dumbravica. And we had a house there that was like very, one thing that I tell people all the time was the, if you go to Europe and try to curate or cultivate an American lifestyle in a European country, you will fail and you will be miserable because that's, it's Europe. It's like a different country. You have to go there and embrace the culture and immerse yourself in that way of life and be like open-minded enough to just learn like that's the way life goes around there and be patient and learn and let it grow, let it grow you and expand your mind. And so we were there and you know, I was, I was really like vibing with this idea that I had this tech project. I was starting to meet with you know, this team that I wanted to like grow this, you know, website consulting and kind of start earning money remotely. Um, and I was questioned a lot by my ex-husband and I was really limited with the amount of money that was afforded to me to be able to invest in that project, even though there was so much money that had been, you know, sent to the wayside and, you know, slowly but surely we're getting back to a conversation where I'm going to backpedal a little bit. It was January. We moved there in 2018 and the uh, end of summer, 2018. And in January of 2019, I'll never forget this night. Our kids went out with my ex-husband to have some pizza at some friend's house. And I was in an Airbnb. This was before we relocated to his city, his home city. And I sat down and I had a spiritual um, knowledge to read the book of Job. And if you have any kind of knowledge of the Bible, you know the story of Job. But if you don't, here's the Reader's Digest version. Job is like God's like most valuable or most like um, submissive or a servant, right? Like he's like, he's homie. He's like the main guy. He's got like tens of thousands of livestock. He's got all this land. He's got all these kids. He's got a great wife. Like he's got a great life. And the devil comes to God and he's like, well, of course he's your best servant because you gave him all these things. And God's like, no, that's not the reason. He really loves me. And the devil's like, okay, well, let me test him. And so God's like, okay, fine, test him. And so the devil go, but, and God said, you can't touch his body though. That's why I'm one non-negotiable. And so the devil goes, okay, I got you. And so the devil goes, he wipes clean his like family. They all die except for his wife. He takes all of his livestock. His land is barren. He loses everything, 
everything. And, you know, he's still sitting there worshiping God. And his friends are saying, you need to curse God. What are you doing? And he stands in the faith. And he's like, no, you know, God giveth, God taketh away. Right? That's like, it, it's, it's like saying, you know, it's not mine. Like, I am me. That's, that's what I came, I came out naked out of my mother's womb. I'll go back naked into the earth. And then, you know, God was like, see, he's still faithful. And the devil's like, yeah, yeah, but you didn't let me touch his body. Like, let me touch his body then. And so God was like, okay. And so then he, Job broke out into like all these boils and like this massive sickness. And his friends were saying like, you need to curse God. Look at this, look at that. And he stood fast. And moral of the story is God at that point said, see, he's faithful and declared him as his most faithful servant and told the devil he no longer has power over him. And actually, Job, it says in the Bible, had, um, I think it's like to the 10th, to the power of like the 10th exponential growth compared to what he had had before. And so the moral of the story is you're going to lose everything, but only so that I can give you much more and you're going to be refined through it. And I was thinking in my mind, we have all these investments that look like they're going through and we should be okay. We got money in the bank. What are you telling me, God? Are you telling me we're gonna lose it all?